You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Remembering Pearl Harbor. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Many years ago, on a quiet Sunday in early December, millions of Americans went about their ordinary routines. Folks went to church, children played out in the yard, teenagers went to the movies, families went to dinner, people listened to football games on the radio. And then everything changed. The news came over the radio that the U.S. military base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, had been attacked by naval and air forces from Japan. And just like that, America was plunged into World War II. December 7, 2021, is the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, back in 1991, as the nation was preparing to mark the 50th anniversary of the attack, that year... Anyone I interviewed who was old enough to remember where they were, I asked them for their recollections of where they were, what they were doing, what was going through their minds that terrible day. So you're about to hear from men and women who on December 7th, 1941, were children or teenagers, or in some cases young men already in the military, who later went on to become influential figures in American politics or sports or culture, journalists, broadcasters, actors, mystery writers, military leaders, and sports heroes. Now you are also about to hear words and terms and songs that by today's standards are rude, offensive, and unacceptable. But in 1941, America had just been punched hard in the face, and our national anger was still fresh and raw. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we get the Alamo. Actor Mickey Rooney shuddered just a bit when he recalled where he was on December 7th, 1941. I had just returned from Hawaii a week and a half before Pearl Harbor, and I had started a new Andy Hardy picture. And we were on the set, and out of my dressing room that I always had music going on in sometime during the day, so everybody, you know, on the set would be listening to some good music, or, and I mean some good music. And, uh, bang, all this, this comes across the air, and... Uh, we called the day's work off. Everybody just couldn't go any further. Meanwhile, in nearby Beverly Hills, actress Ginger Rogers was relaxing that Sunday at home, listening to the radio. And suddenly I heard this explosion of sound coming to me. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced. It's happened. We're being a sneak attack. So I didn't know what to do. I thought, my goodness, the only thing I can do is pray. So I did. And I thought, well, this is certainly intelligence of 
somebody in Washington had gone awry, that they didn't know this. On the other side of the country, in Connecticut, a friend raced up to the home of young actor Hume Cronin with the terrible news. The Japs have just bombed Pearl Harbor, and I ran across the lawn to a neighbor's house, and the neighbor was a lady called Virginia Kirkus. Anybody who knows the Kirkus reviews. Uh, and I said, Virginia, they've just bombed, I didn't, just they, they've just bombed Pearl Harbor. I, I remember that. It was stunning news. And across the Atlantic Ocean, a young man who was just weeks away from entering the British Army heard the news. His name was Peter Ustinov. It was just before I went into the army myself. I went in on January the 16th, 1942. So I knew I'd have to go. It was a great relief from my point of view that now the United States was involved because I never quite believed. I mean, the British were stiff upper lip and all that, but... Um, I, I didn't see how we could win. I could see how we couldn't lose if we went on long enough. December 7th, 1941 was a seminal day in American broadcast journalism, since most Americans heard about Pearl Harbor on the radio. Among those listening that day in Houston, Texas, was future television anchorman Dan Rather. I was 10 years old, just had turned 10, bedridden with rheumatic fever, and I was riveted to the radio. And when the bulletins about Pearl Harbor first came in, I heard them. We take you now to Washington. The details are not available. They will be in a few minutes. The White House is now giving out a statement. From that, I think, um, grew this absolute passion to be a reporter. In a broader sense, I remember December 7th, 1941, because once it became apparent that the reports were true, that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, and that we were going into World War II, and that we were going in, in as underdogs. There was a sense in the country we might be invaded by the Japanese, or invaded by the Germans, or bombed by the Germans. The fear was, was deep, real, and pervasive. In Wichita, Kansas, another future TV anchorman was playing out in the yard with his brother when they heard the news from their father and immediately started looking to the sky to see if they were going to be bombed next. That was 11-year-old Jim Lehrer. They had the radio on, and uh, they said the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. And well, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know, I, 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 it took a while to figure out, and, uh, and they finally, you know, my mother, dad, or somebody said, or somebody on the radio said this meant where there was going to be war. But we look. We kept looking up at the sky, thinking we were going to be bombed too. That was the first thing, you know. I was thinking they bombed Pearl Harbor. Maybe they're going to bomb Wichita, and uh, we kept listening for the airplanes. They never came. In Baltimore, yet another future radio and television personality, Charles Osgood, was attending church with his sister. My sister and I had attended to show you how times have changed a minstrel show at Our Lady of Lourdes church in Baltimore, Maryland. We lived about a half a block from the church. But a fellow whose name was Bill Neville, who was a who was a man who was a sort of elder of the of the church, stood up and made an announcement. He said uh, this is something that uh, that you should uh, know because it's very important and and for you children 
be sure to mention it to your parents when you go home. But he said, the Japanese have just bombed and otherwise attacked uh, Pearl Harbor. Now, this meant absolutely nothing to me, but I could see there was this gasp went up in the auditorium. And when we went home and, and uh, said the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, I think what we said, because it was the way it was announced, was that the Japs had attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, of course, my folks turned on the radio, and there it was. Um, and listening, even now, listening to the, the, the interruption, the voice of John Daly comes across the radio. This is John Daly speaking from the CBS newsroom in New York. Here is the Far East situation as reported to this moment. The Japanese have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and our defense facilities at Manila, capital of the Philippines. Saying that, uh, you know, that, that uh, Pearl Harbor had been, had been attacked by aircraft. Of course, the attack drew Americans together like few other events ever have. 11-year-old future television journalist Douglas Kiker. That evening, in this little town, Griffin, Georgia, we all, my mother and my father and I, my father drove uptown and parked, and it seemed that everybody in Griffin, Georgia had driven uptown and parked, and every car radio was on. We all knew we were going to war. Uh, we all knew that uh, it was the end of something and the beginning of something else. Uh, but you could just walk down Hill Street, and you could, you didn't, <laughs> and you could hear radio after radio talking about Pearl Harbor. Now, in 1941, television was still largely an experimental technology. But on that Sunday, a boy named Martin Quigley, whose father was a magazine publisher in New York City, was actually getting the news about Pearl Harbor the way we now take for granted, on TV. The uh, uh, RCA company had just then been pioneering in television, and they wanted to give a, a, a set to our office, which was in Rockefeller Center, and they found that in those days they couldn't handle the interference. So instead they put it in my father and mother's apartment at 14 East 90th. And I got the first flash uh, in a news broadcast in that early television of, of, of NBC's television. After the short break, where some future best-selling authors were on December 7th. Now back to Remembering Pearl Harbor. Of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor inspired many to go into journalism. Then 15-year-old Tom Wicker, who would eventually write for the New York Times and win a number of prizes for his journalism, was riding in a car with his mother and sister. Between Southern Pines, uh, North Carolina, and Hamlet, North Carolina, which is my hometown, we went every Sunday to visit her family in Southern Pines. And somehow, I don't uh, remember whether we actually got the news before we got in the car or when we got home, because I'm sure we didn't have a car radio in 1941, but it was it was on a, on a Sunday afternoon, of course, and I, I associate that drive and being with my mother and my sister uh, with this dreadful news that we received. You were too young for the draft, obviously. I was too young for the draft at that time, but it clearly seemed to be that uh, the war was going to last a long time. And yes, I spent my high school years uh, in the expectation that I would uh, go into the military. 
uh, and indeed I did. Uh, I wasn't drafted, however. I uh, took an examination and was accepted as a Navy officer candidate, so I went directly from high school into uh, officer's candidate training. To future Washington Post columnist Art Buckwald, the attack on Pearl Harbor seemed to signal little more than a brief interruption in his plans for life. I was 16 years old, and I was in a bowling alley in Forest Hills, New York, with five other guys. And when we heard the news that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, we said, we'll get rid of them in two weeks. Those no good blank, 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 blanks. We will take them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And it was agreed amongst all five of us that the Japanese wouldn't last two weeks. Across town that day in a friend's kitchen, was a young future columnist, Jimmy Breslin, who shared Buckwald's optimism. Oh, of course, that we would go back and wipe them out by nightfall. <laughs> of course, what else were you to believe? You're in invincible America. I thought it was, you know, we would wipe them out. Quick, bang, be some quick victory. Couldn't wait to run to the, see the newsreel of the American victory. We're gonna have to slap the dirty little Jap. And Uncle Sam's the guy who can do it. We'll skin that streak of yellow from the sneaky little fella, and he'll think a cyclone struck him when we're through it. On the day the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, two youngsters who would eventually become very popular, best-selling mystery writers were both at the movies that day. One of them was Robert B. Parker. I was nine years old, uh, and I had gone to the movies in Springfield, Massachusetts, taken the bus downtown, and my father came and picked me up, uh, and uh, he told me, uh, that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. And we were listening on the radio in the car as we drove home. Uh, that all seemed kind of exciting and fun to me when I was nine. And uh, in truth, uh, since I didn't get shot or anything, because uh, I was too young, uh, the Second World War was a hell of a good time for uh, many. It was a very interesting time. And uh, those people who survived it, uh, I think, in general experience it very positively, uh, even the people who were in military that I know. World War II was, uh, you know, like a good one. <laughs> a few hundred miles away, in Detroit, a teenage Elmore Leonard was out on a date. I came out of the Fox Theater in Detroit, downtown Detroit, came out, walked to the corner, and saw extras on a, st on a newsstand there. It says Pearl Harbor bombed. And I was... I had a date, and uh, another couple, I was, what, 16 or 41, 42, 43. I was 15 or 16 years old. 16, I guess. And, uh, and, and of course, we said, Pearl Harbor? Where's Pearl Harbor? That was the first question. By December of 43, uh, I was in. And at that same moment, a young man named Sidney Sheldon was ready to join up and go fight. I was in Chicago, I was 17 years old, and I, I wanted to enlist, and as, as soon as I could, I enlisted in the Air Force and became a pilot. But I remember that day very well, it was, it was horrible. How did you hear the news? Over the radio. In New York City, a young woman who would eventually go on to become a mega best-selling mystery writer was home from college for the weekend. Her name? Mary Higgins Clark. I had just come home from Sunday Mass. And the my mother had the radio on, everybody. And there was a man who, uh, a friend of ours who lived around the corner. Her brother was killed there. He, he was a, a, a career soldier. 
and he was the first one we knew to die. The American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. The next day, we started practice for air raids. They, uh, you know, we were marched out and we would go in the corridors, which were the thickest part, and had to crouch down and grab our coats and put them over our head. In Brooklyn, meanwhile, 10-year-old Warren Adler, who later would become a best-selling author of books like The War of the Roses, was doing what so many other Americans were doing that day. I was uh, listening to a football game in um, Brownsville, Brooklyn. And uh, suddenly somebody came on and said uh, the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And it was, uh, it was so unbelievable that we all wanted to get some confirmation. Uh, I didn't think of it at that point as something that would be so uh, tremendous in my life, in our lives. But I know exactly where I was. And, um, and it, did, uh, it, it eventually uh, moved me to, uh, like most kids of my age, to an outrage and the feeling of tremendous patriotism. How dare these Japanese uh, attack our ships and boys and Pearl Harbor. Remember how we used to call them our little brown brothers? What a laugh that turned out to be. Well, we can all thank God that we're not related to that yellow scum of the sea. They talked of peace and of friendship. We found out just what all that talk was worth. All right, they've asked for it, and now they're going to get it. As an adult, he would become most famous or infamous as the mastermind of the Watergate break-in. But in 1941, G. Gordon Liddy was just 11 years old at his home in New Jersey, listening to the radio. I was in our living room, and we had a huge old uh, AM radio, about the, about the size of, a, I guess, a 30-inch television set would be now, and it was tuned to uh, WOR, and we were listening to Gabriel Heater. Gabriel Heater and his up-to-the-minute news of the world, presented by Forehand Toothpaste. Good evening, everyone. And Gabriel Heater was the preeminent radio broadcaster of his day. And he had a trademark. He'd say, ah, yes, there's good news tonight. Or, ah, yes, there's bad news tonight. And so what he said was, ah, yes, there's bad news tonight. And everybody's listening. He said, the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. But then he went on to say, to, much to my astonishment and that of my father, he said, but, you know, the Japanese are a very excitable people, and this may not mean anything. He would eventually go on to hit 755 Major League home runs, but on December 7, 1941, future Baseball Hall of Famer Hank Aaron was just seven years old. Yeah, I don't recall where I was, Bill, but I certainly recall uh, having uh, uh, my mother uh, tell me about it because at that time she had two brothers that was and not brothers, but cousins that served in that war. You know, I can recall very well. I had an uncle. Uh, he's no longer with us today, and he said right in that war in the middle of it. So I don't know where I was, but um, it was probably one of the saddest days that we ever had in this country. Do you remember uh, the people around you talking a lot about the war? I talked about it for days. You know, I know we've had several wars since then, Bill, several, you know, but, I, and I'm not trying to compare war as a war, and death is death. 
but I would have to say that was probably one of the closest this country has ever come to being taken over by some other country. Meanwhile, another future Hall of Famer, a young Mickey Mantle, heard the news from his dad. I was in Commerce, Oklahoma. I can barely remember. I remember my dad telling I, my. I remember everybody getting really excited about him. My mom and my dad come home from working in the mines, and I said, "What is it, Dad? What's going on?" You know, I can remember this, and he said, "We're going to we're we're going to have a war with with Japan." I didn't even know Japan. You know, I'm seven years old, so. Uh, I said, well, what do you think? He said, I will win it. There's nothing to worry about. After this short break, the recollections of one man who was at Pearl Harbor that day. Now back to Remembering Pearl Harbor. Now, for anyone who was already in the U.S. military on December 7, 1941, the significance of the attack was immediately apparent. One of those young servicemen was future Civil War historian Shelby Foote. I was at Camp Blanding, Florida. I'd been in the Army for 13 months by then. And I went to the picture show. When I got back to camp, everybody was talking about Pearl Harbor, which I'd never heard of. It was a, it was a very exciting time. Uh, I was in the Mississippi National Guard when Hitler went to Poland. I, I was going to show him he couldn't get away with that, and I joined the Mississippi National Guard. And we mobilized in November of 1940, so that I had been down in camp planning for a year and a month uh, by the time Pearl Harbor came along. Joe Foss, who became a flying ace during the war, later was commissioner of the American Football League and governor of South Dakota, was out hunting with some fellow servicemen that morning. And uh, when we came back, I was supposed to be officer of the day at Softly Field, Pensacola, Florida, uh, starting at 12 o'clock noon. So when we came out of the woods, uh, after four other aviators, myself or three other aviators, I guess we're with it, and we came out, the, uh, we came to this little restaurant, and they looked at us, and they could tell by their sunburn on our forehead that we were pilots. And they said, you're supposed to report right into the base. The country's under attack. And we've started looking. We thought Germans and, and Japanese would be coming, uh, running down the road after us. So we tore down there, and I went right straight to the base in, the, in my hunting togs and uh, reported in to relieve the man that was on as officer of the day. Now, for months before the attack, many Americans anticipated that we would eventually wind up in war. The future CIA director, Stansfield Turner, was a college student that day. I was in my freshman year at college in Amherst, Massachusetts. I was outside my dormitory when... Somebody shouted out a window, the Japanese have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. It's interesting to me as I look back that we were even surprised at this. The signs of war were there, not necessarily, of course, a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but that we were going to go into this war. When Pearl Harbor came, we instantly knew we were all going in the military. It wasn't like what's happened with Vietnam and other wars. Uh, all of us just accepted the fact that we were going to go. Of course, there was a draft out there breathing down our, our backs, but it really wasn't just that. I mean, the country was at war. And uh, if you were young and able-bodied, why, you 
just expected that you were going to, to go and contribute. We were maybe too sheep-like, too willing to obey, but on the other hand, that sense of patriotism is something I think we're missing a little bit today. Now, Perry Smith is a retired Air Force general who was also CNN's commentator during the Persian Gulf War 30 years ago. On the day of the Japanese attack, Perry Smith had a unique vantage point. He was a small boy who was at Pearl Harbor. I may be uh, one of the very youngest people who was there who can still remember. And the reason I can remember, although I was only six, I was uh, nine days short of my seventh birthday and a second grader, I was on the way to Sunday school that day and I actually got to see the attack. And, and I was in the back of an army truck, and we were run around like crazy once they realized an attack was uh, was underway. And then shortly thereafter, we got evacuated to the United States, and I went on the lecture circuit in the second grade, third grade, and fourth grade because I was a mini-celebrity. I had been there. So I have told the Pearl Harbor story so well that I can remember very much the bombs coming down, the smoke, the noise, the anxiety, the concerns, the big, digging of the bomb shelters starting the next day. Uh, those kinds of things are in my mind. I didn't see any death up close, and so I was not traumatized by the war, but I certainly do remember it. Did you have any fear that morning that you were going to die? No, I was afraid the truck was going to turn over because he was driving so wildly and erratically, uh, but I didn't, I didn't have the perception that somehow the Japanese were going to kill me. But it wasn't just young men who rushed to sign up and get involved in the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Many young women also wanted to do their part, including the future Aline Countess of Romanones, an American-born Spanish aristocrat who joined the OSS, which later became the CIA, and she was actually a spy during the war. I had come home from college for the weekend, and I was sitting at the breakfast table or lunch table with my mother and father and most of my brothers and sisters and my sister and we heard the maid came in and announced that she just heard on the radio that war had been declared you know we all looked at each other and I have four brothers and I got a chill through me thinking ah my wonderful brothers they'll all probably have to go to the war some of them were still very young 12 and 13 but I had two that were nearer my age and I decided in that minute if they're going to go I'm certainly going to go also and, you know, I graduated from college. I was 20. I was desperate because I wanted to get in the war. Every organization that accepted women demanded you to be 25. But just by luck, I managed to get into the war. And I was overseas, which is what I wanted. And that began this great life for me. New York's Apollo Theater was, as usual, packed that Sunday afternoon. And that's when a young serviceman approached M.C. Ralph Cooper, I think he, I don't know whether he was from the Navy. I think he was from the Navy. He walked down the aisle, and he uh, walked up and beckoned me, and I walked over to see what he uh, was going to say. I thought it was somebody I could play on. You know, you get these guys that mm -hmm. come in, and uh, so they give you an opportunity to get a lot of laughs, you know. But he said to me, he said, uh, I would like for you to make an announcement. I said, what kind of announcement? He said, tell all the armed service people to get back to their posts immediately we are at war with japan i said you're kidding he says no please make it 
So I went back to the microphone and I said, this gentleman just gave me a message to convey to everyone. And I, I told him that. Of course, there was a lull and a hush in the audience when I announced that. And uh, it was a very dramatic couple of seconds there because nobody knew which way to go, what to say or what to do, other than the armed service people. The people who were there in uniform who were from the armed service, they seemed to be the only ones who know what to do. They all got up and walked out of the theater. It was an amazing, amazing situation that lasted for maybe, maybe five minutes, but it was like a lifetime, you know? Then, of course, you know, I tried to say, listen, we'll go over there and knock these little guys off and, uh, you know, bring a laugh out of it, uh, that kind of thing. But that was a dramatic moment. Maybe the only time in the whole history of the Apollo that the, that the audience was quiet. Really, yes. Yes, because normally they would have said, throw him out. <laughs> He's annoying. In rural South Carolina, Dory Sanders was a peach farmer. And she was for many years after that, but she also later became a best-selling author. And she remembered that day like it was yesterday. We, without a radio, didn't know what in the world had happened. And it was, it's a, if a bell, iron bell rings for dinner, it has one sound. If it rings for trouble, which that means it's at an off hour, it has another sound. It has a sound of sadness, and that's the kind of sound that bell had. So right away, we start. Everybody started to whisper, "Someone's dead. Someone's dead." So we were sort of waiting to hear an old T-model Ford roared into the yard, and a man raced from that old T-model Ford, screaming, "We at war! We at war!" I asked that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Now, yes, this was an unusual episode of Now I've Heard Everything. As you know, we typically feature just one interview. And we'll return to that format next time on Now I've Heard Everything with my 2001 interview with the daughter of the founder of the most famous basket company in America, Tammy Longaberger. I think my father in the mid-70s saw people become interested in American crafts and trades and what was handmade and what was made with raw materials. And there was a great interest then in what he referred to as his father's baskets. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.